1: Uh, our human response to what God wants to do. And so um, he can't get to them, but he comes up with a wise uh, way to approach this, to send Timothy to them and and to check on them because Paul's concerned about the fruit of his labors. He's concerned about those that he's witnessed to and invested in. If you have uh, children, you, you have that parental sense of of care and concern about what's happening with them at, at all times, and at times it may even keep you up at night. You know, you're worried, you're concerned, you're you're uh, you want what's best for them, and this uh, this I think describes Paul's heart for them. And uh, Satan hindered them, but but he found a way around. And so now we're hearing in chapter three about Timothy coming back, uh, Paul and. His companions are in Athens, and they've sent back to Thessalonica uh, Timothy in order to um, in order to find out how they're doing. And so, as we get into this this morning, I want to mention two things here. Uh, two reasons why these paragraphs that look like they don't they shouldn't matter to us because they're they're old and they're talking about somebody else. It seems. Uh, I want to talk about two reasons why these things should matter to us. And the first one is that all Christians are gifted and called, okay? All Christians are gifted and called. And I'm going to throw in with that, I'm going to really pack into this first point, that that comes with a responsibility and accountability before God. Okay, do you know that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged for what we did with the gifts that were given? And so it's important that we understand that we're, we're gifted and we're called to ministry. Ministry has gotten distorted. It's the idea of somebody and the, and only these kinds of people standing behind a pulpit or going on the mission field or traveling around and doing evangelistic work. And when actuality, the New Testament says, <coughs> excuse me, that pastors and apostles and prophets and teachers are for the perfecting of the saints so that they can do, they as the saints, that's all of us, So they can do the work of the ministry. Did you know that? So you could say on the front of the the church sign, you know, who are the pastors? The pastors are so-and-so. But who are in ministry? The church. It's the whole church that's in ministry. And so we're called to that. And if we haven't bought into that, then we haven't understood the New Testament model. So that means that when you're raising your kids and you're at work in a secular environment and you're at the grocery store and you see somebody crying crying, you're a minister for Jesus, okay, in all of those areas. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, is it matters how we do ministry. Are, are, you, are you with me? Are you, you, can, you can spin your wheels doing a lot of activity, uh, I think it was Clark Kellogg, the basketball announcer, that used to say things like, look, those guys look like a bunch of screensavers out there. There's a lot of activity, but there's no work being done. You know, screensavers or rocking chairs, lots of motion, but you're not really going anywhere. It matters how we do ministry. It's not just busyness, but ministry has to be done in a certain way. And I think for that to happen, it needs to come from a heart. Do you know God wants to put a He wants to give you a heart transplant. He wants to put his heart in us to do ministry, right? Okay. Well, let's look at the scriptures. You're tired of hearing me talk, I'm sure. Let's look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 6 and following. We'll go through the end of the chapter. I think that's about seven verses total. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecutions, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough to you for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day... We pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. Alright, so as I said, that first part, it doesn't sound like it applies to us. It sounds like Paul's talking about how he feels about the Thessalonians. Okay, so as you look at it, that's true. That's what's being said there. But I think what we need to understand is here is a model of a heart of ministry. Okay? Are you with me on that? That this is not just a a description. If it's true that all scriptures God-breathed and profitable in some way, then I think the way we understand that this is profitable for us is that we're seeing Paul's heart come through. And more importantly, because I think Paul has adopted the heart of Jesus, we're seeing the heart of Christ come through in this. So let me talk about this. What is, what is our joy? And, and if you want to give some, some uh, headings to these, there's two of them. The first one is my joy, and the second is my wish. My joy... And my wish as a as a minister, uh, Paul has something that brings joy to his life. Okay, so what is it that brings joy to your life? Somebody once said that you can tell what somebody values by what they laugh at. Okay, and that sometimes is an indictment, isn't it? When we laugh at the wrong kinds of things, it says something about us. Um, what is it that we value? What is it that we prioritize? Because those things say a lot about who we are. And so, what is it in your life, if you're, if you're to think about, I'm not asking you to respond out loud, but would you consider for yourself, what is it in your life that brings you joy? Come on, participate with me in this, because I think there's something important that happens. As I was working through this, this message, I was thinking about what is it that brings me joy? And one of the things that brings me joy is baptism. It's exciting to see people saying to, their, to the world, to the church, because one of the, I didn't tell them this because I didn't want to spring it on them, but one of the things that happens in baptism is that they're saying, I'm accountable to all of you now for how we live, okay? But the joy of it is this, is that it's, it's symbolizing a new birth into the community. For that, we ought to be, we ought to be rejoicing, and when uh, Tyson texted me and said, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited, I'm excited, too, because this is showing that God is at work among us, and there's other evidences of that as well. But I wonder what it is that brings joy to your life. And I wonder if we, we might compare that with the great men and women of God. What do you think they would say brought them the most joy in life? What do you think David would say? I think... What do you think Solomon in his early days might say would bring him the greatest joy in life? It seems that at the top of the list is there's joy in the Lord. There's rejoicing in knowing God. There's joy in his presence forevermore. And so we know that, and we know that when we get close to people, we find joy in the things that they find joy in, right? Even if we maybe firsthand don't like it, like you might have a spouse that likes horseback riding, and you don't like horses. What's that? Or what? Or not. Yeah, or not. Janie doesn't like horseback riding. I don't know if we've ever tried horseback riding, but it might be like, that's not my jam. But because I love you and I know that you like riding horses, I'll ride horses with you. And I'll even grow my hair long. <laughs> you know what I'm talking I'm just kidding. This is all hypothetical, and I'm talking about somebody else, but um, but you know what I'm saying, that, that you find joy in what the beloved finds joy in, and when you're following God, you find joy in what God rejoices in. What is it that God cares about most? You know, God doesn't care most about real estate. He made the earth, and it's beautiful, and um, some of the shapes of the earth may have been uh, the result of the flood, and... And so there's a sense in which he not only made it, but recreated it. But there's beauty in it, and there's majesty, and there's order, and all of that. But you know that's not what he values most. Is that true? I think, I think he lo- he loves people more than he loves space. Okay? So of all the vast universe, ours, ours is the only planet we know has life on it. And out of all of this universe, somebody once said, I think it was Richard Dawkins in a debate with John Lennox said... I find it petty that that God should come to this little tiny planet in the edge of a smaller galaxy. Why would he do that and die for sins? And I think that's glorious, don't you? It shows his love for us. He rejoices in the winning of hearts and lives. And I think it says something about us if we, we say we love God and we don't love people. Now, I'm not saying everybody has the equal love for people, you know, it's, it's, for some, it's it's awkward and it's a struggle that you have to work through, but God loves people, and so if we want to love God, we need to go where his heart's at, you know? So what is Paul's joy? Well, in verses 6 through 10, look at look at this with me and, and see uh, how he views all of this in light of the difficulty. Because when Paul went from place to place, oftentimes it was accompanied with people hating him and driving him out of town, and sometimes uh, taking him out and beating him up. In one place, they beat him up and left him for dead. Uh, you remember all of that? And so we we see that happening again and again. And he knew this from the beginning of his ministry that this would happen, and he still went out and did it out of love for God and love for people. So look at verses 6 through 10 here with me. <coughs> he says, Timothy has now come to us from you, and he's brought good news about your faith and love, and He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, listen to this: in all of our distress and persecutions, we are encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day, we most earnestly we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. What is Paul's joy? And I would ask you in addition to that, isn't it amazing how he says in all of our trials and persecutions that like gets pushed out of the way because we see that you stand firm in the Lord, okay? Do you you see what's happening there? He's saying in in a sense that all of the struggles that have led to this moment are worth it. Because you're following Christ. And maybe there's some places in life where you've seen that kind of sacrifice, where you've seen um, hardship and difficulty, but it was worth it because it paid off in a certain way. Your joy uh, in the Lord came because you paid the price. So, Paul being forced out by persecution and and then his way being blocked by Satan, they, they weren't sure what would happen to the church and the The church at Thessalonica didn't cave under pressure, and then it was all worth it. So there are things in life, and you know this, there are things that are worth the cost, but if we don't have spiritual priorities, it's going to be hard to see this. But if you have spiritual priorities, you'll know that there are things that are eternal that are worth the cost. I'm sometimes amazed at the frustration that there is in this world. Anybody else? Like, how hard it is to really get something done. Like, you know that Genesis uh, 2 and 3... That's true. There is a, a curse. It's like, the, it's like the earth is working against progress. Anybody find that to be the case? You clean the room and somehow you mow the lawn and somehow it grows back up again. You paint the house, it needs to be painted again. Everything is working against progress. It's moving from order to chaos. And, and we find ourselves in a world like that and there's a lot of frustration. And so it begs the question, what's worth the cost There's some things people do, and they go to a lot of trouble for. It's not worth it. And in a fallen world like this, we have to understand that efforts will be frustrated. It puts me in a mood when I think about people working hard with nothing to show for it. The stories are too sad and numerous to really recount them in detail. But think about, you know, authors who write books that no one will ever read. Do you know how hard it is to write a book? I mean, I don't know from experience, but I write sermons every week, and that's hard. But think about following a theme through, and then you hope that it's good, and you're putting yourself out there. And then you go to Value Village, and you see your book on the discount rack at 50 cents, and you think about the hours and years that you've invested in writing that, and people peruse through it, and you might even see somebody pick it up off the shelf and go, hmm, I don't think so, and put it back. Frustration in this world, isn't there? Like you work hard and sometimes you're frustrated in it, and architects who build buildings which are eventually demolished, and athletes who train their whole lives and they never get into the league. Sowing into dreams that are temporary. And maybe this is the only world you have. You get used to that kind of thing. It's like a sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill just for it to roll back down and to do it again and again and again. And that's frustrating, and that's bleak, and I'm sorry for dropping my mood in on you, but that's sometimes how it feels in life. And then you think about what is eternal and what matters. So much in this world is wasted energy and wasted pain and wasted sorrow. Bleak, bleak. But Paul, he's not investing his life in temporary things. Paul doesn't have a day job. He does have a day job, a profession in which he works with his hands and does products and um, it's commonly called tent maker. Some people think he, he made prayer shaws, and that's a possibility, you know, because the, the prayer shawl is the, the booth or the tent in a way. It's a tabernacle in a way, and so some people think that Paul did that. And then he sold those goods in the marketplace to whoever would buy them, and it supported his ministry in a lot of places. And Thessalonica is one of those, and Corinth is another place like that. But he also invested in people's lives, and he's building the church, and he's extending the kingdom, and it costs him. But his joy comes from the people that he's brought to Christ. And here's something worthy and eternal to give your life to. You know, it's not everybody's full-time job to, in, in the sense that that's where you earn your income, but it's open to everyone to be a part of building the kingdom. And so I'm talking to you if you think, man, this sounds like for the like hyper-spiritual. Do you know that God's design or plan for the Christian church is not to have levels of elitism? Do you know that? That like, oh, well, they're super-spiritual and they're way up here. And I'm like at Padawan level or somewhere down there. And not quite as good. If you don't know what that is, you might need to Google it later or talk to Janie. so will get you straightened out. But you're not quite there yet and but here's the thing that God wants for all of us is to be involved in his work. And you'll find more joy and fulfillment in doing that which is eternal than you will in anything else. And it might be part of your day job, too, to, to be able to do that, to to shine your light and to let people see the love of Christ. But it's God's call for everybody to be a part of that. What can we be doing that's more important than that? We're a growing church right now, and... Um, there are some growing needs in areas of ministry that I would like to point out. I thought this would be a great place for a commercial break and to let you know that we do have needs. And I think it's accurate to say this, that we're at a crucial point where the identity of our church will be shaped, okay? Because up to this point, we've been a volunteer church. Everybody, almost everybody's involved in volunteering, okay? And we're growing to a point where, there can be a temptation not to be involved. And so I want to encourage you that this will shape who we become as a church, our choices individually about being involved in ministry. And if we become, I don't, I don't want to become one of those churches where people can slip in and just kind of consume and then leave and not be a part, because I think it's God's call that we minister to one another. And if we're not doing that, I think we fail somewhere along the way in our mission and so you might ask yourself, I, how can I be involved? And I think there's a lot of areas where that can be. It's not always glamorous, but it matters. And we need more help, people to jump in and serve. And I wouldn't ask for me. I promise you, I would never ask for me for you to do that. Um, sometimes even shy about asking for the Lord. But but I do ask for the Lord. Will you do it for God? Will you be involved for Him and bless Him? Because I think we could we could give Him more than what we've given him before. Okay? And the reward will be change lives and God honors and God will be honored more and more. So now look at verse 10. I want you to notice where Paul's heart is in this. Look at what it says here. Night and day we pray most earnestly. Okay? Can I translate that into how we might view that? Paul is begging for opportunity to serve more. Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what's lacking like in your faith. He wants to connect with the Thessalonians. He wants to minister to them more. He wants to sure up their discipleship in some areas, and perhaps uh, pray for them that they might receive spiritual gifts and, and empower them to be who they need to be. But this is this is Paul's heart. Like sometimes we get to a place where, like, I need to really step back a little bit from ministry and do less. Paul here is the kind of heart that's after the joy that's found in God that says, what what more can I do? And, And I'm not judging circumstances. You need to decide for yourself, but I would ask you to ask the Lord, am I in this moment the type of person who is wanting to step back or to dive in more to the things of God and to be used more by him? Paul is begging, and it suggests to me that we haven't arrived yet. We... Are outshone by our by by the faith of others until we get more joy out of the things of God than we do out of temporal things. We still have a little bit of the world in us. Do you remember? Do you remember when Israel left Egypt? They got into the wilderness, and um, I imagine it this way. That and I know this is true. God was unfolding His plan through His people, and it might have been any given Tuesday that some bloke in a tent somewhere says uh, to somebody else, you know what, um, I miss Egypt. They had the best food. Okay, do you remember that? Oh, they crave the, the leeks and the onions and the garlic of Egypt. And that already is just making me want to have lunch. And so then the people started to talk, and before long, the rumble Of the grumbles, they started to rise and steal the purpose from Israel's hearts because they weren't supposed to want Egypt. They were supposed to be longing for Zion. And they let temporary desires and temporary joys rob them of those eternal things. But Paul has it right. He wants Zion, and no distraction can stand in the way of that. And by Zion, I mean not just a place in Israel or Zionistic aspirations, but the kingdom of God. That's what Paul wants, the kingdom of God to come down and lives to be touched and changed. Are you with me? That's what he wants more than anything. And so temporary things aside, comfort aside, willingness to sacrifice, all of that goes to the side. It's no sacrifice when you're doing it with the heart of God. And so you can tell what he's after by what brings him the most joy. And so when we talk about my joy, here's here's what ought to be our joy, I think. And I need to grow in this, and I think a lot of us need to grow in this, is that our, our joy ought to be what brings joy to God. Okay. Number two, our wish, my wish, my wish. 11 through 13, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, but uh, you might have heard the story about three friends who stumbled upon a bottle with a genie in it. It's a true story. Just kidding. Um, Ryan, Earl, and Biff were their names, I believe. And so they got the genie out of the bottle in the usual way, and he saw that there were three of them standing there, and he said, I normally grant three wishes to one individual, but there's three of you. And they all agreed uh, to share the wishes. And so Ryan said, "Uh, we've had a cold, rainy summer, and I want to, I wish that I could go where there's a nice beach and plenty of sunshine. And so (laughs) so other people are amending that. This isn't... Don't amen in the middle of an illustration. <laughs> <coughs> the, so the genie sent him to Puerto Vallarta. Nice beach, sunshine, hot weather, vitamin D. Now it's the two of them standing there with the genie. Earl said, I've never been to New England in the fall. I hear it's pretty amazing. I wish to go to New England. And the genie sent him to New Hampshire where the trees were turning their different colors. Okay. And so Biff was left standing there alone. And he said, I miss those guys. I wish they'd hurry back. And poof. <laughs> right? I, I suspect that Biff's got it right. He wants to be with people. He's not concerned so much about his comfort. When it comes to wishes, we get superstitious. And that rhymes shooting stars and birthday cakes and wishing wells and eyelashes. And um, I read somewhere that if you see a Dalmatian, you can make a wish. The strangest one I heard of is if you find a horseshoe in a pile of coal, you get a wish. And so I wondered how that started. Somebody, some guy's digging through a pile of coal and he digs up a horseshoe. And I bet he said, I wish I knew where my horse is. When it comes to wishes, we get kind of superstitious about these things. And the New Testament, did you know that the New Testament has um, words that express wish? They have a way of spelling their verbs that show um, that it's a wish or a desire or a prayer. These things kind of get congealed. One Greek word means um, I pray and I wish. It means both of them. And so um, we we shouldn't cast off wishing as if it's a bad thing because it's been abused because we all have desires of our heart, things we like to see. And, and so when we talk about the wish, um, there's three phrases here. They're not telling us what is. They're telling us what the speaker wishes it to be. And so in order to understand this, we have to leave behind what we know about wishing, like blowing out candles and some force in the universe is going to answer that. There's something else that accompanies Christian wishing, Okay, so, when you talk about wish, what are paul 's wishes? Well, you can see those in verses eleven through thirteen This is for the uh, this is for the church at Thessalonica. He says, "Now, may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you he 's not stating a fact he 's expressing a wish, and perhaps it 's even extended to the place of prayer. I think this could be called a prayer. May our God and Father clear the way the the verb clear is a wish verb. I want him to clear the way for us. And then, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow. This, uh, the word for love there is a-, a wish verb. He wants the love to overflow, excuse me, increase and overflow are the wish verbs there. And then, may he strengthen your hearts. Strengthen there is the wish verb. And so, in each of these, these are, these are Paul's wish and when we hear about wishes, we, we sometimes think about blowing out candles and shooting stars and eyelashes and whatever it, it is that we wish upon, uh, a wishing well or, or whatever it may be, but this is different because when it comes to the Christian version of what a wish is, a wish, first of all, states the possibilities, okay? And do you know that with God, all things are possible? So what is it that you can dream of and desire that God would want as a possibility. So these are not statements of fact. These are not questions. These are desires that Paul has. It's a prayer for what the apostle wants to see with the people of God. So that's the first thing that we need to know about this. These uh, three statements they're, they're a desire of what could happen. It could happen. What could happen? Well, God could clear the way for us to come to you and he could increase your love more and more and uh, he could make you blameless in holiness, okay, until the day of Jesus Christ. These are the things that Paul wants to see in those lives, but there's more to this. The other thing that we see in wishing, and the reason I bring this up is because we've been talking about the heart, because in the, in the heart that we have for God, it, what it wishes for in addition to what it rejoices in reveals whether we have the heart of God or not. Do you understand that if you're wanting your neighbor to drop dead, that's not a Christian wish. It reveals something wrong in you, right? If you're wanting, if there's malice in your heart and you're wanting to see bad happen to other people, that's not a God-centered wish and it reveals something about our heart. You know, if, if God's really working in our heart, even our enemies we should be able to bless and pray for, okay, when He's having His way so it reveals our heart and the other thing that a wish does and it takes it out of this type of nebulous superstition thing is that a christian wish relies upon god for its fulfillment okay this is this is big this is where it moves into the realm of prayers that we're not just saying i wish you know as if we're casting our words upon some kind of mystic waters out there that some force may respond to we're talking about expressing Godly desires to a personal God who can't answer. And do you know that it's not wrong for you to pray your desires? Now, we always have to understand that God is working in us, and He may reveal that some of our desires are wrong, and that we need to change those. Even in prayer, even after we've been a Christian for a long time, we might find that we're praying for things that are not quite the right thing in the right way. And God may deal with us in that time of prayer and say, I need to work on your heart a little bit more, and this is really what you ought to be praying. But it relies upon God and not superstition. It looks to God rather than unconnected things. In fact, uh, one of the verbs for prayer means both I pray and I wish, as I mentioned. And the trouble that we have with wishing is, as I said, it's connected to the birthday cake uh, candles and genies, things we don't believe in. But a wish is an expressed desire, and this is what we do when we pray. We express a desire to the Lord. Now, not just that, but that's part of it. And if you haven't been praying like this, this might open up another aspect of prayer for you, that you as a son or daughter of God can be honest with your desires before God. And if they're wrong desires, you'll find the Bible and the Holy Spirit dealing with you on them. But He doesn't condemn you for praying. He deals with us, and He changes our wishes and desires as we mature. Are you with me? And that's good news, isn't it? That we're, we're not out there lost, but God is continually conforming us to the image of Christ. He's shaping us, and He's using um, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to do so. And I would suggest to you also the Christian community as well. He's shaping our desires to become more like Him and so that we can have the heart of God. And so, if you haven't been praying, this might open up. Well, I hope you've been praying, but if you haven't been praying like this, Lord, I would really like to see this might be a way that God works in you to disciple you a little bit more. Obviously, the best prayer we can pray is the perfect will of God. Do you agree? Like, we're we're praying God's will, even if it's really not what we want. There's something to be said for praying God's will. Jesus In the Garden of Gethsemane, I think the flesh didn't want to go to the cross. Would you agree? That's just like obvious to me. Uh, If there's another way, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's his rock altar prayer in Gethsemane. And so that's a good prayer. And there are times that we have to push self out of the way and say, it's not really what I want, but I know this is right, and I'm going to pray it. And you might feel that way when you're praying for people who've offended you or wounded you. Like at the moment, you might be, be parroting the words that you know are right. Okay? But don't stop because I think you continue to pray in that way. I think God can fill your heart with the right intention, and he can change your whole heart for people in praying for them. Okay? So that's the best. And the lowest form of prayer, it seems to me, are really selfish desires. Okay, like you're only praying for what you want and never for anybody else. And not just like what you want, but maybe even things that are sinful. People have done that before. Like, God, I don't like this wife. Send me a new one. It's not really a great prayer. It's a bad prayer, isn't it? That's what Janie told me when she was writing this message. It's a bad (laughs) prayer. (laughs) No, I'm I'm kidding. But... There are sinful things and sinful desires and things that we can pray for that are selfish. Like in James where he says, you have not because you ask not. And you when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives to consume it upon yourself. Selfish thing. Okay? Now, it's not wrong to ask for your daily needs and the things that, some, even things that you want. But you have to always leave room for God to say, that's not going to be for your best. Right? So... That's the lowest form, it seems to me. But isn't there a place between God's will and where our desires meet, where we want what God wants, and our will is in alignment with His will, because we've been, we've really gotten on board with this program. Do you know what I mean by that? That our will, like we start to really want what God wants. There's a place in, in our Christian walk where we know the right thing, but we don't we're not fully on board with our attitude. Yeah? Okay? And I think there's a place in which our attitude starts to come into conformity with God's will. Amen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Where now we want what God wants. We find joy in what God finds joy in. And we desire to have happen not what we want. Like, if God didn't want us to be super rich, but He wanted us to uh, to go live in a, a mission lifestyle somewhere where it was going to require a lot of sacrifice, we'd say, you know what, all I want is God, you are my portion. And so I'm after that. We would do that because we find more of a treasure in God than we do in the temporary things of life. Okay? So I think there's a place where our will, and it has to be trained to do this, comes into alignment with God's will. And I think you get, you get some sweet spots of prayer when that happens. God can answer some of the selfish things. In fact, sometimes he did it to people's detriment. Israel, remember when they asked for a king? And God said it one time, but nevertheless, you asked for it, you got it. Remember when they said, we just would rather die in the wilderness than possess the promised land? All right. That's not what I want for you. But if that's what you want that badly, he gave it to them. Okay, We don't want to be on that end because that's a losing end. Okay, But God is a good, he's good at answering prayers, and and he will answer prayers sometimes when our heart's not in it. And we know it's the right thing, and we're parroting the words we know we ought to say. And he'll answer those prayers, and he'll show us how good it can be. Come on, right? And then that sweet spot comes when everybody's in agreement with what God wants to do. There's beauty in that. We get with the program. Look at what Paul is praying, and see that these things are are God's will. And at the same time, he's praying for them. And so let me challenge you to find the heart of God and to let him change your heart to be like his heart. Look at these three things here real quick, and we'll we'll wrap this up. But I, wanna, I want you to notice what Paul is praying, and I think this is God's will for, for all believers. And so as, as he's prayed this, I think this is also God's will for you and me. And so it's, it's here in the Scriptures. It's for us. It's a an expressed wish, but I think we ought to understand this. This is God's wish for you and I, you and I. You and me. Okay. Notice uh, he prays this. It sounds very, very much like this is uh, the details of something that is just happening with Paul. But he prays for a clear way for fellowship. Verse eleven: May our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. He just said. In the previous verses, we wanted to come to you in the end of chapter two, I think verse 18, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. Satan stood in the way. okay So now he's praying that Satan's um, obstacle, whatever it is, would be removed and so that Paul could finally come for what purpose? to fellowship and to minister with me say God wants to answer prayers like that and so we can pray prayers like that. And we can expect that God wants those things to get out of the way, but notice the purpose of it it's for the fellowship clear the way for fellowship and ministry to happen. Remember Satan blocked the way. do you think God can clear it? Yeah, do you think god and Sa- do you think Satan's any match for when God gives his declarative word? no in fact, um <clears throat> there's this place in the New Testament where I think it's in Jude, and I think some echo of it's in. Second Peter where it says something like this that when disputing over the body of Moses, uh, Archangel Michael didn't bring a railing accusation against Satan. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. And all that's all it takes is a word from the Lord and that's done. Okay. I, and I didn't mention this last week, but I don't know if you've noticed this. Paul didn't run around, he wasn't rebuking Satan to get him out of the way. There's time for that. But in this scenario, he recognized that God needs to open the door. Come on, true? God needs to open the door. And so he was going to do that. Could there be other obstacles that stand in the way of fellowship like this? Because what Paul's after here, reuniting with the body. What we're talking about here is some obstacle that's standing in the way of true fellowship. What other obstacles stand in the way of that? Well, sin stands in the way of that. And self stands in the way of that. We have personal preferences, and we get selfish about those things. Like, you know, if we have a church event, let me just mention something like this: we have a church event, and we're we're going to um, a restaurant or something like that. Okay, S- I think we need to consider more about the purpose of something like that than the fact that we enjoy the restaurant that we're going to. Like I think it's a shame if somebody says I'm not going to that restaurant because I don't like it. I don't like their food. Well, that's not the point. The point is that we're going there. to the family of God to fellowship. You understand what I mean? This is an example of how sometimes selfish preferences can get in the way of seeing the true purpose of a thing that we're doing. And so we need to evaluate things like that. And we have another religion that's moved in to our world, and it's the therapeutic. We live in a therapeutic society in which, and therapeutic is about me. It's a me, okay. Um, we're, we live in a time where sociologists called uh, the the main theme is expressive individualism. I'm a person, and I have freedom to express myself. And so, the focus of a lot of these things are the self. And sometimes it f- finds its way into the church, and we think, boy, that sounds really good except for the fact that at the center of it all is the self and not Jesus. And when that happens, yes, healing is good and God wants to heal us and he wants to lift our burdens and he wants us to be whole psychologically and physically and spiritually. Yes, all of those things uh, in his time. But the self is not the point. Because when we're truly healed in God, it's not about the self anymore. It's God-centered. On, are you with me? Self can stand in the way of this. I'd like to go on, but i got to hurry. Okay, and then the, the third area would be with sin. Sometimes we don't want to be uh, allowing God to work and bring fellowship because of some kind of sin. Notice the next thing here. Paul's second um, <clears throat> wish is for love that increases and overflows. This uh, combination of words, increase and overflows, is connected by the word and. And, and they really are two parts of the same thing. And what it means is for it to grow and increase in intensity, so it 's not only a matter of qu- uh, quantity but it 's a matter of quality. Do you, you understand what I mean by that it 's not just more love but better love for one another, not just more but better. He wants us to have not just more love but a refined kind of love, yeah, more better right and we want we want to we want to have that kind of thing. God wants to do that within us he desires to perfect our love. And this happens, it does not happen in isolation. (laughs) And so, if you don't like being a part of the church because it's inconvenient or there's people that aggravate you or whatever, I think it's really part of, I know this probably gets old to hear, but it's part of God's plan to perfect our love, to put you in situations where your love's tested. That's part of it. And so, if we're resisting that, we may be resisting God's program for change. Okay, So he wants to uh, better the quality of our love and uh, increase its intensity and the quantity as well. And so I don't hesitate at all to say this is God's will for us to love better. Now, he's already acknowledged that they love. This uh, challenge, this exhortation isn't saying to anyone here, you don't love like God loves None of us do, but it's not to say you don't have love. It's to say love needs to grow, not only in, qu- in quantity, but in quality. And God will help us to do that by giving us a more Christ-like love. And then the final thing here is his final wish is a holiness empowered by a holy God. Maybe a better way to say that is blameless, blamelessness in holiness. That sounds uh, like a mouthful. He says, may He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all His holy ones. Now, this points to the fact that we're not on this endless (coughs) conveyor belt or whatever it may be. That sounds ridiculous, but this is not an endless progression. (coughs) A day is coming when our lives will be evaluated. And so, what Christ has done is he 's cleansed us from sin and he 's set us right with the father and he 's not only done that but he 's um, given us the holy spirit and he 's begun the and the holy Spirit's begun the work of perfecting us, making us creatures that are fit for eternity with God, more like him. One day we will stand before him and we 'll answer questions about how we lived our Christian life and it's not, to me, it seems that this is not a matter of salvation so much as a matter of accountability for the gifts you've been given. Do you see the difference? Like, you're not, it's not necessarily about you losing salvation here. This is about God asking, you've been saved, you've been given the Holy Spirit. With those resources, what have you done? And the goal is for rewards not for rebuke, although I think there will be some rebukes because the Bible talks about some people will will uh, be there that they have nothing to show for their lives. And that, that is sad. He's talking about God empowering a kind of blameless holiness. And you know he can do that. We often hear the, um, and you've probably heard this too, we're, we're not um, perfect, we're just forgiven. That's true. We're not we're not perfected yet, but I think it allows something else to creep in. And it's, it's the idea that we can't really have victory over sin. And we can. We can have victory over sin. I'm not suggesting to you a perfectionism like anybody here has arrived. I'm saying to you that we can move in progress to become more and more like him in true holiness. If that's not true, there's a lot of Bible verses I have wrong because I think the Bible points to this. He wants us to be blameless in holiness. The NASB or NRSV says it, I think, the best. And may he strengthen your hearts in holiness so that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. The day is coming when Christ will return and we will have to answer for how we've lived life. God can empower that kind of thing. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Thessalonica. It's my hope for us that these things would be true, okay, that we we get fellowship, we get ministry, okay, we understand it and we're doing it from the heart that God's given. That's my heart for us. And I want us to be people who love and are increasing in love, not the f- flabby kind of worldly love that's out there. Love with substance, you know what I mean? Love with true holiness and cares for truth and we can love one another in such a way that we become better people as a result of it. And then, a blamelessness in holy things. Uh, holiness is a an attitude towards God. It's separation to God. That's an internal quality that we have with our heart. Now, the outworking of that is that there's righteousness, that our lives match that holiness. Since we're separated to God, we separate from sin, and we live lives that please Him in practical ways. That's what God wants for this church. And so it helps to understand that the kind of people we are comes from a heart that's been transformed by God. Thanks for your attention today. Let's stand together. Janie's going to come play. And as she does, I, I'd like to invite you. I felt like this morning, first of all, I should ask if you've never committed your life to Jesus, today you can do that. He died for you and he rose again from the dead. And he offers to us forgiveness forgiveness and salvation in in Him, and uh, he, he offers to us true life change, and we can respond to Him simply by acknowledging our sin and believing on Him. And so we could pray simply, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I put my confidence in You. Lead me as Lord. He'll respond to that. If you pray a prayer like that, tell somebody about it so that we can encourage one another and walk through this faith journey together. But the other thing I thought we should really give opportunity for today is this: is that is is finding the heart of God. You might uh, have heard this message and say, "I don't find joy in those kinds of things, and those aren't my wishes. I've I've got other dreams and concerns. Uh, that's fine, but." What I'm asking is, would God, has God made those, his heart your heart as he poured out into your heart the things that he loves and cares about so that you're changed and different and not consumed with self but consumed with him and with ministering to others? If not, would you pray? And maybe you say, I already have a heart for God, but I want him to pour out more in me. I don't think there's anybody that shouldn't respond in some way today. So if you'd like to, you can come to the altar. You can make an altar at your seat. But let's sing this song for just a few minutes, and we'll try to be out at our normal time. But take a few moments today, not only here, but later on as well, and let's seek the heart of God for us. We want your heart, Lord. Amen. Be here next week, it's about ready to get real practical. have done that shift as Paul does in all of his letters, from the describing something that is to how do you live the Christian life, and he's he's about ready to do that. And it's gonna it's gonna get exciting. It might get a little confrontational as we deal with God's word. Not not for me, but let's let God's word confront us if we need to. Let me say this one last thing: is that the, the heart of God comes from proximity. If you get close to Him. And you stay close to him even if it's uncomfortable, you will change okay so um, be flexible and responsive to what God wants to do but if you get close to him in prayer and in reading his word and staying among his people and desiring God, he will give you his heart okay all right father, thank you Lord for this day and we pray that the word your eternal word what what was in it from this message Lord we pray that it would take root in our heart and grow, that it would benefit us, that it would change our week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.